If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Ho, 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 happy holidays. And welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, a very special holiday edition. We are going to be discussing, well, let's just go in and say, the virgin birth as we're in our series on the, um, what are we calling this, the pillars of the Christian faith. Uh, just in time, very timely, we're going to be dealing with the virgin birth and ruining Christmas for everyone. So, uh, pull, you know, pour yourself a nice hot mug of hot chocolate or whatever, whatever you're drinking, your, your drink of choice. And... Uh, Prepare yourself for a very special edition of the Heretic Happy Hour Podcast. My name is Keith Giles. I'm the author of the just-completed seven-part Jesus Un series of books, Uh, each book looking at a different sort of facet and phase of deconstruction, reconstruction. Um, Most recently, Jesus Unarmed, How the Prince of Peace Disarms Our Violence. And I am joined by my co-hosts. Well, I let them introduce themselves Let's just let's just take it from there. You guys just introduce yourselves, and here we go. I think I can manage that that much. Uh, my name is Katie Valentine, and in light of our topic today, all I can say is happy holidays and ho, ho, ho. We'll get there. We'll get there eventually. Uh, I'm the creator of the Metaphysical Christian Community on Facebook. I'm the author of Sex, Slavery, and Self-Control, and I'm excited to talk about the topic today. It's been uh, kind of running around in my brain, so I think we're going to have a lot of conversation. And Derek Day is not here, so I'm going to jump on in. Does anyone want to tell our listeners where he's at? I, I don't know if I... And, and, and privy to, to where he's at. I got a cryptic text message earlier that said he was... Ooh, do tell. He said he was a little jealous of your time when the two of you were gallivanting during the Valentine's Day takeover, and oh, he boy. wanted to go experience the joys of naturalism and nudity. Well... So I think that's where he is, so... It's a, you know it's the wrong time of year. I got to tell all three of you are crazy. It's the <laughs> wrong time of year to go to a nudist colony, but do what you got to do. Does does he know about shrinkage? I'm sure he, he must know about that. <laughs> he watched Seinfeld, I'm sure. So. I'm sure, I'm sure he does. It's a great. That's a great episode. <laughs> does she know about the shrinkage? Shrinkage? What's that? <laughs> like a turtle. Yeah. Well. <laughs> well, Derek, we we all hope you're having fun as much fun as Keith and I did. Uh, we won't make any more jokes. Enough enough snake jokes, worm yeah. jokes. All those jokes are. In the past, yeah. we don't we don't need to revisit that. So I'm Matthew J. DiStefano, and I am the author of. Well, I've got two books that are on sale right now. So I'm going to tell all you lovely listeners. I don't I don't know why you wouldn't have these books by now, but they're two ninety nine. Heretic and From the Blood of Abel are two ninety nine on Kindle. So I would love it if you would uh, go pick that up on Amazon right now. Stop the recording. Go do that, and then come on back. Come on back. Yes. Exactly. Come on back. And I am totally yes. not done with any of those jokes you said we were done with. <laughs> oh, well, fine. I mean, throw one out there, Katie. You got another one? Or you, well, we're talking about know. the virgin birth, and Derek said a nudist colony. So, yeah, I feel like a couple are going to be forthcoming. <laughs> All right. We'll see. All right. <laughs> oh, we boy. can't promise anything. Oh, boy. For those who want to get in touch with your favorite podcast, we do have a hotline. Get a pen. Here you go. 240-343-7379. Once again, 240-343-7379. You can call, you can text. And today, we have a text. So cue up that text. 
Here we go. After listening to dozens of podcasts on cults, I feel so sorry for the cult members who died for their beliefs. Are they in heaven? End quote. And that is from Elaine Matthews. Mm. Well, thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Elaine. And first of all, I feel sorry for you that you've been listening to so many podcasts on cults. But, um, but I would say it's a good question. Um, you know, I, I agree with you. I, I do feel sorry for cult members, people who suffer in, in cults, even if they don't die, just being in a cult in general kind of sucks, especially if it's, you know, controlling and there's abuse and, you know, emotional, sexual, physical abuse and things go on, um, in cults that are not good. But your question is, are they in heaven? And obviously not. So they're, they're all going to burn in hell for eternity because they didn't pray the prayer and they didn't put their feet up. No, of course I'm kidding. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I guess to me, the question, I guess I understand the question, but yeah, to me, I think everyone is in heaven because I think your question assumes that there is some sort of a punishment for someone if they don't believe the right things. And I, don't, I personally don't think anyone, what, what you believe or don't believe, I think has absolutely nothing to do with where you end up. And I kind of feel like we all end up where we kind of are now, which is in Christ. And uh, we can't escape that. And so, you know, he, Christ is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And um, I think when we physically die, we remain connected to God or Christ or the universe or the source or whatever you want to call that. I listened to the Heaven's Gate podcast like probably two or three years ago. Oh my gosh, it was fascinating. So Elaine, I want to know the other podcast I should be listening to because that one I was riveted by. I listened to it just like straight through. Uh, on uh, Christmas holiday, actually, I believe. Um, yeah. And so I, yeah, I'm with you. I feel, I do feel so sorry for cult members. And when I was listening to that podcast, interestingly, I was living in Chico, California at the time. And all of a sudden Chico came up and one of the family members of the cult members who had died, uh, had moved to Chico. And so they were going there to interview her and it kept on catching my ear because, um, the fair town, my former fair town and where, where Matt lives. Is that public, Matt? I just outed you as you just out of all, all of my rabid fans are going to come. Uh, you're going to be the mail will be pouring in, so <laughs> they're going to descend on the town. Of <laughs> yeah, I mean, like like Keith, I'm not, um, I, I'm not a believer in hell. Um, so are, but but your question doesn't ask, are they in hell? It actually asks, are they in heaven? Um, mm. Well, I have no flipping idea because I don't, I don't know what happens uh, exactly when we die. I have right. my suspicions. Um, so they're in some kind of level of heaven or afterlife or the in-between place or whatever it is. Of course, some of them may um, choose to come back and learn more lessons or do something a little bit different. So maybe they'll come back to earth or some other planet or dimension or whatever. Um, I think what I do feel solidly is that they are being cared for. There you go. They're being cared for and loved wherever they are, where they are. No idea. Don't pretend to know. That's a really good answer. I, I like kind of the uh, the uncertainty with which I now think of the afterlife. I'm convinced that everything's going to be okay. What it looks like, I have no clue. If I've been there before this incarnation, I have no memory of it. So I, I can't, yeah, like you, Katie, I can't speculate. But I think behind the question is the sense of, are they okay? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. so I would I would say yeah, I would I would tend to guess like I believe in a god that is good. And um so yeah, everything's going to be okay. Uh I will say that people suffer heaven and hell today and now and yeah. that that should be our most primary concern. So 
if someone suffered in a cult for a long time and and they've since passed on, I would say they're probably in a better situation than, than the cult they were in. Exactly. Now, there are times when I wish I believed in hell, you know, certain situations, certain people like the vindictive, petty, um, unchristlike part of myself. Every time I'm in traffic. Yeah, in traffic <laughs> and Walmart, wherever. But like, Walmart, cult, le- Walmart. like cult leaders, sometimes I'm like, I really do wish I believed in hell so I could believe but, yeah, uh, sure. that, that's not that's yeah. not the nice part of me. It's a fleeting thought every once in a while. Some some of these cult the cult leaders are often very ill themselves, but sometimes they're just kind of jerks who like who love power. Yeah, sometimes they're psychopathic, sociopathic jerks. Yes, yeah, I, I haven't listened to podcasts on cults, but I have watched several um, like Netflix documentaries uh, or just documentaries in general about different cults. There's um, there's Wild Country on Netflix, which was fascinating. That was really good, and then. Um, I can't think of the other one, but there was another one about a very similar kind of a California cult where the guy was, you know, very abusive and stuff. And then um, there's a really fascinating one. It's also a documentary. It's called Kumare, I think it's called. If you haven't seen that, I really recommend it. It's about a guy who makes a documentary. He's Indian and he makes a documentary where he pretends to be a guru totally makes it up, invents all these yoga moves and invents all this philosophy out of thin air. And instantly these people follow him and follow him around. And he kind of gets a free, he kind of freaks out like, oh crap. It was so easy to get these people to basically just hand over their life to me. And then because he's filming it too, it's like, well, uh, now what do I do? It's really great. It's a really fascinating documentary. I love that one. Well, yeah. And so I'm curious about like, the vulnerability of people who get caught up in, in cults. Yeah. Right? So it's, it's offering them something yeah. that they're not being offered. That's right. That they're not getting in their lives. And so for like the, the, the pastoral side of me is like, what are, how can we do that better? No, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what I think, Katie, when I watch those things, I, I my heart breaks for these people because they are so desperate for connection yeah. and for meaning and, you know, joy and all these things. And, and these gurus promised them that. And in some ways, initially, this is, I think, the, the insidiousness of the, a lot of these cults is that the, every, in fact, when they do the testimonials where they interview people who were part of the cult, you know, now it's over and, and, and they, they're talking about their experience in the beginning. And often what they'll say is the early days, the first few months or years were beautiful. They were great. And it's, it only like later on, usually it'll become sort of toxic. So, um, yeah, really, really sad to me that that happens. But yeah, great question, Elaine. And I would just say real quick too on the hotline thing, don't write it on a piece of paper. You need to take that number and save it in your freaking phone. Save the number in your phone because you know what? You'll oh, be driving in your sorry. car and you'll be thinking about it. You know what? I need to, I need to ask Eric to happen. Don't I need to make text a comment. while you're driving. But don't text while you're driving. Yeah, when you wait till you get to work, and then the go in the bathroom. Like everyone else. Yes, or the side. Well, this, this is a revelation, Keith, because you're the old man Giles, and I'm the one telling people to get a piece of paper. <laughs> yeah, get a piece of paper. Fine, there's something to write on. Just memorize it, you know? It's funny, yeah, I have yeah. no numbers memorized. If I lose all my numbers in my phone, I'm stranded. You're, Completely you're stranded. up shit, Craig, huh? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty bad. All right. Well, okay, so speaking of cults, I think that this is a nice, natural segue into our really wonderful Heretic of the Week. Um, just a little warning for everyone. Um, this is uh, a, gr- a great guest, and she is also talking about kind of being in a cult-like environment, and there is going to be some a little bit of talk about like conversion therapy. So let's welcome our Heretic of the Week. It's the Heretic of the Week. 
Hi, my name's Yvette Cantu Schneider, and some people call me a heretic. Hi, Yvette. How you doing? Pretty good. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, real quick, before we jump into this, before we get our, into our first question, I, I probably should say how uh, we got connected with you. So I watched this documentary on Netflix called Pray Away, which I thought was really great. And I think I must have shared the, a link to the trailer on Facebook with, to somebody. And then the next day, um, you know how Facebook, when you're scrolling through, Facebook will say, recommend like people you might know. And usually it's nobody you know, like, but wanting you to friend some random person. And I'm scrolling through Facebook and it's, and it says you, someone you might know. And it says Yvette Cantu. And I'm like, and your picture's there. And I'm like, wait. That's the person from that documentary I just watched. And I couldn't, but it's never happened before. So I, I friended you and I thought, well, and you accept it. And then I was like, hey, Yvette, I know you're probably getting inundated with requests for interviews after that documentary on Netflix. But if you ever have any free time, we'd love to talk. And you responded. And so here you are. So welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. So that was your first mistake is accepting the friend request. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> yes, but that acquainted me with the Heretic Happy Hour. Okay, so let me ask you the first question. Uh why would someone call you a heretic? Well, it's interesting because people in the evangelical church, the conservative evangelical church don't necessarily like it when you stop believing what they believe. And I was for years, I worked for Family Research Council in Washington, D.C., which was started by Focus on the Family to be their political arm before it went off onto its own thing. And then I was the director of women's ministry for Exodus International, which before it closed was the largest ministry for LGBTQ people who didn't want to be gay. We tried to change them. And after a while, I realized, look, no one's changing. I mean, we've, I've been in this movement for 20 years and haven't seen anyone really change. So I don't think people change. And that's what yeah. makes me a heretic. Yeah. And now a little bit of your, can you share a little bit of your personal story of how, how did you get involved with that, those organizations? Why were they asking you to be their spokesperson? You know, how did all that come about? You know, that's a great question because I became a Christian when I was 27 years old. I was raised Catholic and then fell away when I was a teenager because I didn't see God doing really anything in my life that I wanted God to be doing in my life. And I felt like I had a relationship with Jesus, even as a Catholic. I really felt God's presence and prayed every night. And I, you know, I was a pretty good Catholic when I was a kid. And then suddenly I wasn't, I just didn't, I just didn't believe anymore. And then I went, when I was in college, um, I went to India for a year and I studied at the university of Delhi and it was there that I had my first lesbian relationship. So when I came back, I was really gung ho. I'm, you know, I'm gay. I'm a lesbian activist now and I'd go to the pride parades in West Hollywood and Long Beach, California, where I'm from. And, um, and I was really 
not a self self-loathing gay. I didn't have all of the stuff weighing me down from having a Christian upbringing that a lot of fundamentalist Christians have. I didn't have that sort of guilt. I didn't feel that there was anything wrong with me. Um, and then this was in the, you know, we're talking like mid late eighties now and AIDS became a big problem as you know. And one of my best friends was a gay man who, before I went to India, I had told him, whatever you do, just promise me that you'll never get AIDS. And then six months after I got back from India, his name's Ed, he told me that he had AIDS. And I was devastated. And I, you know, by now I'm like 21, 22 years old. Between that time and the time I was 30, I lost 17 friends to AIDS. Wow. So I was very, I lived with Ed for a while and his partner, Mike, who both had, who both had AIDS. And I was trying to, you know, help them as much as I could. And, and it was very stressful for me. It's the only way that I can describe it, especially seeing so many deaths at such a young age. And I was working at a law firm in LA and one of my coworkers said, you know what I think could help you is if you came to church with me. So I went to church with him after he asked me many, many times because I said, look, I mean, I know what Christians think about gay people because I've seen them at the gay and lesbian pride parades and they're carrying signs saying that we're going to go to hell. And my friend Jeff just kind of pushed that aside. He didn't address it really. And so I went to church. And when I went to church, it was this evangelical, charismatic, not, I call it charismatic light because there, it wasn't a, a holy roller sort of thing. It was like praying in tongues, but no one was falling out in the spirit, that sort of thing. But I really felt the presence of God. And I thought, this is what I want. This is what I need. And that's when I became a Christian. And I was in it and thought, yes, this is, this is exactly what I want to do. This is exactly where I want to be. I love God. I want to learn all about Jesus. I read my Bible constantly. And then after a year, I, it was probably close to a year. I was even living in a house with seven other young Christian women. Some of them were college students. And they called me in, and this was one Sunday after church, and said, uh, the pastor's wife wants to meet with you. I'm like, okay. And so I go to her house, and I'm there with someone who's called my discipler. And so we're, the three of us are sitting there, and the pastor's wife said, well, I saw a spirit of homosexuality on you when we were praying the other night. And she got mad at me. She said, you didn't tell us about this. And how dare you? And you're a threat to the other girls in your house. And so they cast the demon of homosexuality out of me. And they filled me with holiness and then said, okay, you can't go anywhere. You're under quarantine. You can't go anywhere. You can't talk to anyone. You can't socialize. All you have to do is read your Bible, pray, go to work. That's it. That's all you can do. Oh, and you have to tell all your friends, everyone, all your roommates and all your friends that you're a lesbian. Because at this point, you're putting, you're, you're, they're under threat because of you. 
I'm like under threat. I mean, what am I doing? And at that point, I felt like I should have just left. I should have just grabbed my things, moved out of the house, but I didn't because I really did love God and I wanted to please him. And I thought, well, if this is, you know, if being gay isn't pleasing to God, then I won't be gay. I'll just, I'll do whatever they say because I want to serve God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I thought that was the only way that I could do it. So I became super Christian and I went into full-time campus ministry for like three years. And at the time I had this friend who was really into pro-life and she was doing a lot of shows, a lot of interviews at the time. And someone, I, I guess, asked her in Orange County if she knew of anyone who used to be gay. And she said, well, as a matter of fact, I do. So I went on this pastor's local TV show, which was, I mean, I don't know if anyone ever even watched it besides his family and maybe his friends. And so I go on this show. And after that, I was asked to speak at something that was called Christian Outreach Week in Orange County that was affiliated with the mayor's prayer breakfast. And so it was this talk that I gave out of the closet into Jesus's arms. Well, it just so happened that this woman sitting in the front row afterwards says to me, would you consider relocating to Washington, D.C.? And I thought, whatever. I mean, I'll say yes, but I doubt anything will come of this. Well, it ends up that she was on the board of Family Research Council and Focus on the Family. So she was serious. And then they had me do the exact same talk again at someone's house that they recorded. And I'm sure you probably saw that in Pray Away because I was wearing that pink suit. And they <laughs> recorded that and they sent it off to FRC. And within like a month, they were contacting me and asking me to fly out for an interview. And so I flew out to Washington, D.C. I was interviewed at Family Research Council, spent the whole day there talking to different people, and they hired me. And that's how I became a policy analyst at Family Research Council. I did lobbying on Capitol Hill. I spoke before uh, state legislatures, national legislature, college campuses, all sorts of things. And then I became one of the original Love One Out speakers for Focus on the Family when they were having those conferences, which were for families that had uh, family members who were struggling with, struggling, in quotes, <laughs> with homosexuality. Right. So that's how that came about. And I mentioned this also in Pray Away, that one of the reasons that they found me appealing was that, number one, I was a woman, because they didn't trust that men actually changed even then behind closed yeah. doors even though outwardly they're saying yes anyone can change they said we just don't trust these guys it always seems like they're falling they never really stay straight and so we uh -huh. want a woman and we want to and we like that you're my my dad was mexican and that's why my last name is Cantu. and they said you know, they want someone who's Hispanic. So right. that helped to have someone of color and a right. woman. Right, you checked all the boxes, basically, yeah. Yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah, 
And so, so that's a long of, answer to your question of how I got into it. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, no, and I, I, I love hearing that part of the story. And so at that point in your story, right, you were, I mean, I guess, right, you were pretty convinced, like, no, I'm not gay anymore. Jesus has changed me into the straight person now. And you're the spokesperson for a, for a group and for a ministry that is kind of all about that, right? Yeah, that's right. And I never really lost my same-sex attractions, but I didn't think that that was relevant. As long as I wasn't acting on them, Uh then I thought, well, I'm okay. And that's sort of been, you know, that's what people wrestle with. It's like, what is change? Is change that you lose your same-sex attractions or is change that you're just acting differently? So that's something that is still, you know, now the church is saying, well, it doesn't matter. Okay, so maybe people can't change, but then you have to be celibate, but or you still have to marry heterosexually. Mm-hmm. Right. But in my case, I'm bisexual, so it was, but that was something that really wasn't recognized in the church at the time. Right. It was like you're either straight or gay. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you couldn't, and bisexual was not even in the conversation, and it seems strange to even mention that. Yeah. So, Alan Chambers, who was the president of Exodus, would say towards the towards the end when Exodus was near closing, he would say, ninety nine percent of people don't change, and the one percent that he was thinking of was me. <laughs> because no one was really considering that bisexuals existed. Yeah. Now, you know, what's funny is because it almost comes across to me in the documentary as if, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost felt like that the attitude at the time was everyone is born straight, but something must happen to you when you're young, some sort of sexual trauma or some abuse or something that sort of twists you or turns you so that you become gay or lesbian. Um, because, But normally everybody is straight, right? And that's, and, and that's kind of, it felt like that was the approach or the, the philosophy they had. And so their, their goal was to basically have Jesus come and heal you of that trauma and take away whatever that was so that you could now go back to being normal, quote unquote, which means straight, right? For that, for, for some, that's, that's still, uh, that's still the philosophy. When we, uh, a vet, I'm also bisexual and we had a caller into our hotline that was saying the same, he asked the same things like, what happened in your life, Matt? What trauma happened that led you to be where you are thinking that you're bisexual? So it's, it's still ingrained in there. Yeah. No, I, I'm just thinking like, what, what, where does, you know, there's, you can't control the color of your eyes. You can't control the color of your hair. There, there is something, you know, I used to be of that mindset that somehow you had to choose this. And, and what I'm, what I'm learning is, and, and, uh, and Matt, your, your experience has been really helpful in this is that it's not rigid detente. It's more like, like a rheostat on the spectrum. And, and there's, there's, there's a sliding scale, but it's like you're attracted to whomever you're attracted to. And, and to say that you have any choice in that matter, I just think that that really, that really spits in the face of the beauty of creation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. 
And it's, well, it's two things because you have what you're talking about, which is some sort of developmental issue where something went wrong in your development, whether it was sexual abuse or you're a gay man, you're a, you're a, a boy who's too close to your mother and not close enough to your father. That yeah. was the big one with, with NARTH for National Association for the Research and Therapy of Homosexuality. So I remember at one Love Love One Out conference in Tennessee, and this happened several times, but someone stood up and said, I had a fine relationship with my dad. I had a fine relationship with both of my parents. And Joseph Nicolosi, who was the head of NARTH, said, well, let me sit down with you for a while and let's find out there had to be a root cause. They, ha- they had to find a root cause and just wouldn't accept that, hey, some gay people have perfect relationships with their parents and it doesn't have anything, homosexuality well, doesn't have the same-sex attraction to do with it. How about something goes right? <laughs> I mean, honestly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, because, honestly I, have, I, have, um, I have gay and bisexual friends that they have great relationships uh, with their parents. And then I have some that have really fucked up relationships with their parents, but they turned out to be really good people in spite of their parents. Yeah. So so what if something went right? I mean, that's... And, and that's the thing that, that really irritates me. I'm going to jump in and ask a, another question. So the, the pivot, what is it in your life that made you say, you know something... This orthodoxy thing just isn't working. I'm, I'm just, I've gone full heretic. <laughs> well, you know, they said you, you never go full heretic, <laughs> but, but I think you've gone full heretic. So, what, what, what was it that that caused that pivot? Well, I had been. It, it was a number of years leading up to it because I saw people were not changing. That was a big part of it. And I would, uh, you know, when I became the executive, I mean, when I became the director of women's ministry for Exodus, I would talk to the women's ministry leaders at the member ministries throughout the country. And there were so many who were either attracted to someone who who was in their group or who had actually had a sexual relationship with someone in their group. And I'm thinking, these are leaders and they're having a problem just not having a sexual relationship with someone. And these are the women. I knew leaders who were in like big positions of leadership who were, who were saying one day from the stage that they were straight, that they, that God had healed them. And meanwhile, they have their lovers staying in a hotel waiting to meet up with them afterwards. This is the sort of thing that I saw time and time again and thought people are not changing. In fact, I can't think of one person who has, I knew plenty who had gotten married to members of the opposite sex, but they, they admitted to still having same sex attractions and that their same sex attractions were much stronger than any heterosexual attractions they had, if they had any at all, which most didn't, most had no heterosexual attractions. So I was really struggling with this, but that was my job. That was my income. What, this was my family. This was my church family. This was my community. I knew that if I said, I don't believe this anymore, that I would lose all of that. And I would have no kind of 
you know, none of those relationships would be salvaged. I knew that. But then it got to the point where I was starting to have panic attacks. Even for the last Exodus conference, I was supposed to speak and we were driving down and I started having a panic attack. And we turned around and went home. I couldn't just, I couldn't continue. But I still didn't make that connection. I knew that my heart wasn't in it anymore. I knew that I probably couldn't do this anymore, but I really didn't know of a way that I could back out. And this wasn't a full conscious thought. This was just niggling at me. And then my youngest daughter, who was five years old at the time, was diagnosed with leukemia. And I lost it. I was just having panic attacks, incredible anxiety. And I went to a therapist and she said, you know, this, of course, this is a normal reaction for someone whose child has cancer, but I think it's more than that. She said, you have symptoms of PTSD. So this is something that has been going on for years. And a lot of the time when we have issues with anxiety and panic, it's because we're not living authentically. So she said, you need to spend some time thinking about what it is that you're doing that isn't authentic. And I said, I don't need to spend any time thinking about it. I know exactly what it is. I'm, I'm in a job where I'm telling people that they can change from gay to straight. And I know that that's not true. And I know that I've never changed. And I know that and no one that I've seen through any of these ministries has ever changed. So that was it for me. And that was, it was my daughter's cancer, which really pushed me over to where I wasn't listening to other people's voices anymore. I wasn't, we had to back away. It was a two and a half year treatment. So we weren't going to church. We weren't around other people. I had taken a leave of absence from Exodus. And then I could really just be me and figure out this, this is who my authentic self is. But it took something that dramatic. Yeah, I think it's so fascinating. And I know you share that in that story, that part of the story about the having the panic attack in the documentary. And I just found that so fascinating. It's something where like, subconsciously, you know, like, it's almost like, yeah, subconsciously, there's a part of your brain screaming, no, 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 this isn't right. This is this doesn't make sense. This isn't good. And it's almost like it has to send you signals some other way subconsciously to say, you know, hey, something stop. Something something isn't right here, right? And uh, it takes something that dramatic for your body or your subconscious brain or whatever to kind of conspire against you and say, stop, no, think about this. This isn't good for you. This isn't good for other people or what you're doing. And um, and I, I think it's so fascinating too, like you just said, when when you're when they asked you, could it be something like you knew exactly what it was? I knew exactly what it was. Because it had been weighing on me for a few years at that point of really seeing, look, no one's changing. And not only are they not changing, they're becoming depressed. They're becoming anxious. Their lives aren't something that you would look at and say, wow, this is what Jesus wants. Jesus wants you to be full, riddled with anxiety and depression and you know, wishing, hope, wishing that you could have a relationship with someone of the same sex and knowing that you can't, and that in order to be accepted by the church, you're going to have to marry heterosexually, 
which I always say is so unfair to the partner. You know, I, I, I think that Christianity causes enough anxiety on its own without the complication of sexuality. And, and, and I, I, my, my, my hat goes off to you in, in that you're able to, to, to find your way, find your space. And, and find a path forward because it, it's like the whole religious paradigm, I believe, is designed to cause anxiety, to cause self-doubt, to cause fear and self-loathing. And and for you to have um, found a way forward from that, I think is a very incredible story. But I have to ask one question. As you, you mentioned your daughter, how is your daughter now? She's fine. She's perfectly fine. I have two daughters. They're both in college and they're doing great. Cool. And they were actually horrified by Pray Away. They were in it. (laughs) (laughs) If you saw it, you saw them. But when they actually watched the movie, they're like, oh my gosh, mom, what the heck is that? (laughs) What did you (laughs) used to do? I warned them. (laughs) There's going to be old footage in here that you're going (laughs) to be embarrassed by. (laughs) So, um, Yvette, what, what is it in your opinion that you think the the what why is the focus so much ingrained in evangelical culture to focus so heavily on whether you're gay or straight and you know if you count up all the bible verses there's thousands and thousands of them and perhaps there's six or seven that discuss what we could construe to, to have anything to say about quote-unquote homosexuality. Why, why do you think we're so heavily focused in the church on, on this issue? It's the marriage of religion and politics. Because people like Jerry Falwell and the, the moral majority, and they saw, oh, here's this voting block that hasn't been tapped into. And how can we, you know, here are these Christians who are saying, we don't need to vote. We don't need to be involved in politics. This is of the world. We're not of the world. So we don't need to bother ourselves with this. And so the right is thinking, well, we need this vote. We need to find a way to capture this vote. And how are we going to do it? And that's when they started bringing in issues like abortion, homosexuality, things that people really we're not thinking much about and not caring much about and made it a big deal. Because when I went to church, when I was in church, there was nothing that was being preached about it. The the pastor wasn't preaching, don't be gay. The pastor was never mentioning, don't be gay. But it was, this is what I don't know how to put it really, but it was, it really was those sort of televangelist types and those that like the Jerry Falwells that were involved in politics too, who said, okay, we need to get the church on our side. And the way we're going to do this is by bringing in divisive issues. So we can say, if you don't watch out, this is going to affect your children. Because if you look at anything that the church starts getting scared. Uh-oh, what's going to happen to my kids? They're going to teach homosexuality to my kids and they're going to be influenced and they're going to teach this in schools and we can't let this get out of hand. 
So it's really just a fear tactic used by, and I saw this because I worked in politics, used by the political right to get votes and to get people on their sides. And we've seen, as you know, we've seen that just spin out of control. Yeah, you're exactly right. I I totally agree with you on that. I think that um, that is something where on the conservative, you know, Republican side of things, Christian, and, and how it's been wedded with the, the conservative Christian church, um, they sort of choose these, I call them um, the shiny red button. They have these red button uh, topics and, and it's either abortion or gay marriage. Those are the two that work the best. And they basically just pull this red shiny red button out, you know, when it's election time and they get everybody riled up about, you know, yeah, that's right. We've got to oppose this. We've got to oppose that. Vote for me. And then once they're elected, they kind of put that under the desk again <laughs> because, well, we're not really intending to change any of that because it would actually be the worst thing possible because if they actually solve that problem, then the next election cycle, they'd have no reason to get people fired up and upset to come and, you know, vote for me or else this horrible thing's going to happen. You need the or else. You need this other threat that I have to protect you from and you have to vote for us because we all need to be afraid of whatever this boogeyman is, this, this red button issue. And and you're right. It's uh, gay marriage has, has become that issue. And it, it, but nowadays, I, I mean, I, I guess I can understand it maybe back in the day. But I feel nowadays like it feels like such a losing battle. Like, guys, people are gay. You're not going to change this. This is, you know what I mean? I, I, I just I don't know why they don't see that this is a losing battle and they're on the wrong side of this. And maybe it's just because they're, they're you know, they, they haven't found a good replacement, you know, uh, red button issue that's just, that, that's as, uh, that's as effective as abortion and gay marriage, I guess if they could find something, they would probably drop it like a hot rock and go to the other thing. But it's always sins that that the typical people don't have, right? Like, oh, I'm straight, so I don't struggle with homosexuality. Therefore, let's condemn those people, right? So it's something I don't, I don't ever have to worry about. <laughs> what they're doing now is picking on trans people. Mm-hmm. All the trans bathroom bills, this was trans bathroom bills came through Liberty Council. It had nothing, they had nothing to do with an outcry of people saying, oh my gosh, we have to separate genders in the bathroom. No one was saying that. This was something else that was manufactured. And for that reason, because they're losing on the gay issue, so they're, they have to find a new one. So now trans people are being targeted. Yep, that's right. It's like on the trans thing and the bathroom thing, I always want to say to people, let me tell you something. You've been going to public bathrooms your whole life and every, uh, I promise you, you have, you have shared a public bathroom with a trans person thousands of times and you've been totally fine. It's never been a danger to you. You just haven't known about it. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> that, um, this has been awesome. Are you... Um, you, you had mentioned the documentary Pray Away. Are you working on anything? Can our listeners, who I'm sure will be resonating with what you're talking about, uh, can they find you on social media? Not that you want them to, because the people, <laughs> listen, the people that listen to our show, I don't know about them. Um, <laughs> but uh, do you have any books or, or do you have any projects that you're going, uh, that you're working on? Do you have a website? I am on social media. I'm on Instagram and Facebook, Yvette Cantu Schneider. I have written a book called Never Not Broken. And this isn't broken in the sense of there's something wrong with you. This is 
ridding yourself of bad habits, of just refining yourself, never coming to a point of perfection where you're, where you stop looking, where you stop working on yourself. That's what I mean by never not broken. I'm also working with Kathy Baldock at Canyon Walker Connections on the website. Yeah. And the website there's canyonwalkerconnections.com. And we have blog posts and all sorts of information that's invaluable to help the church become affirming of LGBTQ people. Oh, that's beautiful. Wow. Yvette, thank you so much. I really, I love your story and I, I love your boldness to tell your story. And I'm so excited to hear that you are, uh, you have a book and that you're actually involved working on the other side <laughs> of talking to Christians who are gay yeah. and, and bi and transgender, uh, but affirming them and letting them know that there's not, they're not broken, broken and that they're loved and accepted and wonderful people. So that's, that's so good. I love it. We want to celebrate, not just tolerate. That's right. And we want, we want to affirm and, and, and really acknowledge, celebrate and, and just love the, the diversity. Absolutely. Being LGBTQ is a gift. It's not a sin. It's not a problem. It's a gift. And you're right. We need to celebrate it. That's beautiful. All right. Thanks, Yvette. Oh, wow. That was so good. Eva. thank you so much for coming on to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast and being willing to share uh, your story with us. And yeah, I was just really blessed how much um, we kind of hashtag blessed, how much we... Uh, you know, have in common and, and great to hear that you become a fan of the podcast as well. So uh, lots of love. Thank you so much for being our guest. Dang, I'm so sorry I couldn't be there, but I was not at a nudist colony. Mm-hmm. There's the, it, They have them every week. You can just show up whenever. <laughs> at, yeah. at the nudist colony? or Well, the, the events that they, 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 well, hopefully not pray away. <laughs> <laughs> no, God, I hope not. Oh, <laughs> uh, Yes. And so, hey, real quick, before we jump into our topic, uh, I just want to take a second and say a huge thank you to our Patreon supporters. You know, it means a lot to us that you guys um, go the extra mile, really, truly, and not just listen to the podcast and uh, and send us notes and, you know, things like that, but that you love it enough to financially support, even if it's just, you know, a dollar, two dollars, whatever it is, uh, or more uh, every month. It really means a lot to us that that you support us. Um, and we love being able to share with you like extra content, uh, you know, extra uh, conversations after we turn off the microphones normally, after we turn off the podcast, regular podcast microphones, um, extra interview footage and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of great stuff coming up. Um, if you don't support us already, go to patreon.com slash hour and become a supporter and you will unlock, oh, a treasure trove of yummy, yummy goodies. Hey, and it's like giving yourself a Christmas present because there's so much awesome stuff up there. Go check it out. Now, with that said, mm. let's, let's talk about virgins. <laughs> uh, look, look, even when I was an evangelical, I never understood the fascination with the virgin birth. I didn't understand how it was important. Mm-hmm. So please help me out. Uh, help me understand why it's important. Well, you know, what's funny is like when we were first talking about covering this topic, I I suddenly realized I really didn't know very much about the history of this doctrine. Like, is this something, was it like a, like a pretty early first century kind of a doctrine that, that was there always from the beginning? Or is it something that crept in later? I And frankly, I couldn't find a whole lot of information that it kind of crept in, like a lot of Christian doctrines do, um, that it kind of crept in later. So it kind of seems like it was 
I mean, I guess anyway, it seems like it was something early on, but I guess what I'm, I personally wonder about it, and we'll, and we'll get into it in this episode is, um, the problem is, is that, you know, when it, it's only mentioned in Matthew and Luke and, um, not mentioned in Mark, which is, I think, interesting. We could talk about that. But, um, but even when it's mentioned in the gospel of Matthew and the, in the gospel of Luke, um, it's always, I, I think, in connection, if, correct me if I'm wrong, with the sort of quote unquote prophecy in Isaiah, um, that's quoted that the virgin will, you know, be with child and blah, blah, blah. But now see, the interesting thing though is that virgin, uh, I think if, if I'm correct, right, it really just refers to a maiden. So it's not necessarily some miraculous thing where a woman who's never had sex has a baby as much as the sign, I think, was initially just, at least in Isaiah, that's what it is. It's just that a young maiden has a child. Yeah, a little more complicated than that, but we should get into the scripture and the translations and all of that. And, um, you know, I grew up going to Catholic school where, like, Virgin Mary is everywhere. Um, oh, and yeah. so I'm, I'm having a little trouble distangling sort of that background from evangelicalism, from my kind of other mild Protestantism, <laughs> where it's not talked about, but sort of presumed. Yeah. Like, like the virginity Mary is always presumed. And um, I mean, it's, it, you know, I've been singing all these Christmas songs lately, and I, I joined a little choir in my town. And so it's, you know, the Virgin Mary had a baby boy and born of a, born of the Virgin. I mean, it's like everywhere. It's like such this presumed thing. And so, um, you know, why this is a big deal, I'm unclear on other than it's like miraculous. The, you know, that, that, that kind of part adds to the mystery and the mystique. But I think it also adds to like um, purity culture nonsense. And like for oh, a lot yeah. of women, like when we talk about Madonna whore complex, like that's all... Are you are you Virgin Mary? Are you Mary Magdalene? And then there's like no in between, and um, so it gets into a lot of like underneath this is a lot of potentially sticky stuff, and then a lot of potentially kind of cool stuff. <laughs> so, uh, I'm not gonna. Man. I, I, I almost stuff. said something. Sorry, weird. sorry. Yeah, I, I had I, I had a yeah thought in my head when you said sticky stuff. I'm just gonna move on, um, <laughs> but because I think there are this is great, Katie, because you kind of touched on there's this sort of dual thing um there's kind of two things going on i think with the virgin birth so one side of the virgin birth is like you said it's miraculous and typically yes it is it's uh i think in the evangelical circles it's mostly the emphasis that he's the son of god it's the holy spirit that fathered him and not uh, not joseph and it's sort of so it, then it carries on into the incarnation the trinity and all that kind of stuff right so i think that's one side of it for christians but then you're right the other side of it unfortunately has become the assumption that, well, you know, sex between a man and a woman is kind of dirty and and sinful, you know, even if you're married, which is kind of stupid. But yeah, it then it leads us into, like you said, this purity culture nonsense about like women, you know, shouldn't should be should be virginal and should be chaste and all this kind of stuff. And that and that if you have sex, well, now there's something wrong with you. And um, and so so Mary, of course, to be the mother of Jesus, she couldn't have been someone who enjoyed sex, right? Uh, that yeah, would have been horrible, exactly, right. You know, why though? Like, why? like to me, so, okay, I know I'm asking rhetorically, um, but like to me, it's almost like we had this Jesus who is kind of a nobody. He's poor. He comes from nowhere. He's, he's viewed, he's not viewed like favorably, like some sort of high priest or anything, 
But then we want to make sure that he has this like miraculous story. Why can't he just be the son of maybe a dad who left or even just a normal guy, even if Joseph's the father? To me, I mean, just reading the story, to me, and I have my ideas on why the virgin birth is important when juxtaposed against um, some other ancient stories. But to me, it reads like, <laughs> like someone who had sex and got pregnant and was like, oh no, I didn't have sex. It was God who did it. <laughs> like it's, yeah, like, right, like right, it's right. an excuse. Like we've all seen those memes. Like, uh, oh, of course. Well, yeah, it, it almost reaches this level of like that, that kind of mentality too. Like, you know, if somebody sings a, a song at church or, you know, has a certain talent and someone goes, oh, that was really wonderful. Like, oh, no, no, that wasn't me. That was God. Yeah. Right? It's like this, yeah. well, really? Because actually, I think it was you. It was, it was you. And, I'm not, and, and it wasn't that great. <laughs> the ultimate humble brag. Right. <laughs> Mary, Mary is the humble brag. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, there's, there's a lot about the, like, when we talk about the Holy Family, and I think this is part of it, sort of a gift for my um, Catholic schooling uh, that I do find really valuable. Like the the original holy, the original holy family. Holy family. Anyway, Mary, jo- Joseph, and Jesus. We can even demote them from holy family to just family. Uh, but it's this blended family, and the sort of idea that like Jesus has two dads. Yep. <laughs> right. Like I find yeah. all that. You know, I find all that like somewhat compelling. Uh, yeah. There, you know, Mary and Joseph's relationship. Where I, what I find kind of interesting, it's like really important for Catholics that Mary remains a virgin even after Jesus is born. Right. Like forever virgin, the ever blessed virgin. Um, and mm. I'm like, that sounds not fun. Like there's. <laughs> It yeah. sounds like the marriage gets, is not going to do well. Right? Like she gets no reward at all. Like for all of this, like this, this sucks for her. Um, like Protestants don't seem to be so hung up on that. And, and it's really hard to explain away the, um, when Mary and Jesus brothers come to um, criticize him and to try to get him put away. Um, and so there's some sort of clever explanations around all of that. Um, but so I, you know, I'm kind of curious, like where you all like land on that. Was that something that was emphasized for you growing up, or whether if 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 Mary remains a virgin? Yeah, or no, no, no. It was never even talked about. I mean, it was just always assumed that Mary was a virgin. But what happened after? I mean, I think it was just assumed that she probably did not remain a virgin. Okay, right. no, but, I, but, but I, I didn't grow up Catholic though. Right. I think you're right. See, if you didn't grow up Catholic, growing up Southern Baptist, it was the, the teaching was she was a virgin. It was a miracle. Uh, Jesus' father was God uh, through the miracle of the Holy, Holy Spirit somehow providing this other part of the DNA. We don't get, you don't, don't get too particular how that happened anyway. And, uh, but, um, but then afterwards, yes, like you said, Katie, what about these verses where his brothers and his sisters come and, um, you know, and and so yes, it's the it's assumed. I was always taught that you know after Jesus was born, Mary did have sexual relations with Joseph and had many other kids. So it was never a big deal because I don't think you know. Again, if you're not Catholic, you don't sort of need Mary to remain some sort of holy, right? You know, yeah. blameless, spotless, yeah, not quite the same character. status. Yeah. Um, and so then this gets into, and I'm about to go on a tirade. Um, this gets into the whole. Uh, idea of 
women, Mary specifically, is having the magical vagina. So this is what I call the magical hoo-ha, and they have the magical baby, and that's what they're there for. And this is so (laughs) annoying, and it's in every fucking sci-fi, dystopian, futuristic movie. Drives me crazy. Terminator. Right. So like Sarah, Sarah Connor, she has to have the magical baby and her magical hoo-ha is going to be the savior of all humanity. (laughs) And after that, she's unimportant, except for the stupid series with Lita Hadley that didn't succeed. Right. Right. And Mm. so like the magical baby and the magical woman who's going to bear the magical child by divine announcement by some person from the future, some person from the past or some angel or whatever. I'm over this trope. Um, And I don't want to reduce Mary. Like we don't want to, I don't want to be reductionist towards Mary because like in my work now in metaphysics, Mary shows up all the time, Mm -hmm. like all the time. Um, I think like she's a really, really powerful being uh, that I have a, a good relationship with now. And so like when we reduce her to only her only status being important as a, a virgin mother of Jesus, it's not the most important thing about her. <laughs> yeah. Like there's a lot of other, there's a lot of other things going on with Mary uh, that are, that are also worthwhile to talk about. Okay. So magical hoo-ha tirade over no, for now. But great, great observation. And um, I think quite often when that trope gets repeated uh, as often as it does, um, and I don't know, I don't have a complete list in my head, but I'm betting most of the time it, that the special child to be born is usually male. Often. Yeah. Yeah. The magical child is male and the magical hoo-ha, of course, is the, uh, is the source of it. But, you know, but like you said, once the baby's born, thanks a lot. Right. And yeah. Isn't it also, by the way, isn't that also in Dune, which I love? But isn't Dune the same kind of thing, right? She's told to have, she's told actually to only have girls, but then she has a boy. But the boy, of course, is the special. He's the chosen one. Right. I feel like there's a little more agency there. And of course, you know, I'm a Dune fan. So, yeah. Um, yeah so, but I do have some critique about uh, por- portraits of women in Dune. In the movie or in the book? Yes. The movie or the book? Both? Yes. That sounds like a great conversation for Patreon. <laughs> there you go. You want a four-hour takedown of doing the movie? Yeah, <laughs> Matt is like, and let's group. move on. I'll, <laughs> just, I'll, I'll put my headphones down, come back and check on y'all in a little bit. <laughs> so, so I want to throw something out, and I hope this isn't too much of a um, no. This is on the topic, but um, I don't know where I personally stand on the virgin birth thing. I think, like, I don't know that I feel very much like. Jesus had to be born uh, in some miraculous way. Uh, I mean, I used to, but I think I'm reaching the place now where I kind of lean, and man, boy, this is going to be, this is going to really earn me some heretic uh, stripes, I guess. But, you know, I've heard the, one of the sort of the myths or the stories um, around the birth of Jesus was that the possibility that Mary's um, pregnancy was unexpected, that perhaps she was raped by a Roman soldier or something. And this is part of the reason why Joseph wanted to put her away, but then decides not to. Maybe, maybe, maybe then there was some kind of an angel that speaks to him, or maybe even, you know, Mary has some kind of spiritual encounter that says to her, Hey, this horrible thing happened to you, but God intends it for good, sort of a thing. And uh, this child is going to be some special child, and blah, blah, blah. And uh, the good will come out of this horrible thing. So I don't know if that's the case or not. Chris has very, very scant evidence for any of this at all. But just in general, whether or not she was raped in the Roman soldier thing, I don't know. But I mean, just in general to say, I'm okay. I'm completely okay. In fact, I probably lean more in the direction that Jesus' birth was not some miraculous 
thing. And regardless of who his father was, whether it was Joseph or someone else, it probably wasn't another guy, uh, I'm guessing. And I don't know how that worked out. But I personally don't really hold on to this belief that that there was some magical miracle, you know, the Holy Spirit snuck in her room and impregnated her and then she had a baby. I, I just don't buy that. I, I honestly just think that asking the biological question of virginity is kind of boring to me in this case. Um, and I think it kind of misses the point. So I, I read it a lot more mythologically. And so I, and, and I, when I approach the Bible these days, it's always like, okay, so this is what the Bible says. What are other stories say? What do other mythologies say? And there's a lot of instances of gods who force themselves upon humans to have sons of gods. Yep. Yeah, a ton. And a ton. Like, there's a lot of trigger warning rape going on in mythologies. And and in this story, the you know, so it's different because God doesn't have sex with a human in order to have a kid. It's some sort of, you know, virginal birth, if they, but mythologically, I'm not talking biologically. So, right, right. So that, that uh, that's to say this God is different God, in, 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 when comparing this God to other gods. It's the way I approach like uh, creation myths, original yeah. murder myths of, uh, you know, Cain and Abel, Romulus and Remus, and just noticing these seem like polemical stories rather than we're going to do an introduction to virginal biology. It's like, and how babies are born without intercourse. It's like, that is, I, I think I've heard Rob Bell say this. That is such a boring question to answer. Yeah. I just had a question and I know Katie, you wanted to say something to it. I, I just had a question to throw out there, which is if Jesus birth wasn't some miraculous virginal thing between the Holy Spirit and, and Mary, does that disqualify him from being the son of God? I mean, in other words, we're talking about the pillars of the faith here, right? And 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 at least I am sort of questioning, and I think Matt's kind of agreeing with me a little bit, that that the virgin thing, the miracle part of the birth, isn't really that interesting and isn't even, I, I don't think it's that necessary, but is it necessary for Jesus to be more than just a, a rabbi who was born somewhere? You know, and, and uh, well, I think that's. I, I think it'd be interesting to kind of talk about all four gospels and kind of how they answer that question because I, I think that's we have different perspectives. Um, and even bef- just returning really quickly to Matt's kind of mythological analysis, which I really appreciate. The one of the gifts I think in kind of reading between the lines of the gospels, especially the Gospel of Luke, because the Gospel of Matthew is really Joseph's story. I mean, Joseph is really the main character in that birth story. In the Gospel of Luke, it's really Mary's story. Um, and in that story, I think we can see some element of agency on Mary's part, some element of choice. And so mythologically, I think this does, it differentiates the Christian story. It's not super obvious, but Mary seems to, um, and, and the dogma of the virgin birth actually says that Mary chose, that Mary said yes that she didn't have to, that it's not a forced encounter. And so, I, you know, I do think the New Testament is playing on those, like that would have been easily understood by everyone in the ancient world. Oh yeah, a, a demigod. Right, sure, have right. a son of a mortal woman and a, and a father who's a god. That would have been easily understood by every pagan convert to Christianity. Um, and I do see Mary having more um, 
yeah, more agency in this story, which is to me an empowering part of the story. Well, and it go, and it goes back. I mean, we could you could draw a parallel all the way back to the creation story of like we're created uh, in God's image and likeness, and you juxtapose that to other ancient mythological creation stories where uh, humans are created as slaves to the gods. And so it, it continues in that, that parallel where we're not forced to be slaves. We're not forced to have sex with the gods in order to procreate these demigods. It, 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 it stays consistent. <laughs> yeah, thank God. Are there, are there any prominent theologians that um, don't affirm the virgin, the virgin birth? Well, funny, you should ask. Actually, yes. Uh, I was curious about that. Uh, we were prepping for the show, and um, it was funny because I I came across some some notes about the fact that there were plenty of actually pretty prominent, um, a much longer list than than we should probably we have time to refer to. Most people would know the names. I didn't recognize a lot of the names. But not not all heretics. Not all. But, you know, well, it depends. You know, again, heretic is relative. Depends but I on think who you ask, right? Right. I think um, it was interesting to find that yeah, there. are Plenty of uh, Christian, uh, even I guess some Christian denominations or groups that um, that hold loosely to and or just don't, you know, kind of deny the virgin birth as a miraculous thing, and yet still consider themselves Christians and are, are considered Christians. Um, but some of the some of these theologians um, of some prominence, like uh, James Pike, uh, who was Episcopal Bishop of California in 1958 to 1966. Uh, he also uh, at least doubted the virgin birth. Of course, Spong, John Shelby Spong, who recently passed, uh, the same kind of thing, didn't, didn't really hold very tightly to that. Marcus Borg, uh, John Dominic Crossan. But, you know, for a lot of people, those names I just read are like, well, yeah, those guys well, are heretics. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I, I consider them Christians. And, uh, and yeah, so they were pretty vocal and honest about saying, you know, they didn't really hold to that idea. And, and again, lots of other names. And I guess you could add my name to that list too, because I'm not sure. Uh, I, I definitely don't think that it was some miraculous thing. Or I don't need it to be. I guess I should say that. I don't need it to be a miracle. Yeah, right. Would it be helpful to kind of think through either translation issues or kind of returning to Keith's question of like, does this need to be the case in order for Jesus to be the son of God, like the, the four gospels? Well, yeah, I mean, so... I think let's just answer that question because I think that's a quick one to answer. And then we definitely need to look at the verses because there is a problem, I think, with some of the texts uh, where we get this idea of the virgin birth. Yeah, well, I mean, the I mean, the idea that Jesus, uh, the idea that Jesus is sort of born of a virgin, we only see that in the two of the two out of the four Gospels. So they're definitely not the earliest. So like in the Gospel of Mark, that story begins really with Jesus baptism. So in my reading or my understanding of the gospel of Mark, it is at Jesus' baptism when he becomes the son of God. That's when this like, official thing happens. Yes. It doesn't seem to be important about like sort of any miraculous birth, at least in that gospel. And it's in that gospel too, that we see when Jesus' mother and brothers come to um, try to get him put away because he's acting so crazy uh, and, and endangering himself. And then our, you know, our final gospel, the gospel of John, seems to not care about this at all. Like, nope. I mean, Mary appears in all four gospels. Like, there's, I think there's very little doubt in my mind that the historical Jesus's historical mother was named Mary. Right. Like, that seems very, very clear, very affirmed. Um, I mean, but, you know, we start, we have this whole, talk about mythology, we have this whole mythological um, 
account of how the word who is Jesus comes into the world in the Gospel of John, it's not at all concerned with his parentage or any miraculous birth. Or yeah, exactly. It's not concerned at all with his phys- the physical man Jesus as much as it's it, yeah. So there's no birth narrative in John. There is the origin of the Christ or the Logos yeah. narrative and the beginning of creation. Yeah. Anyone have a favorite? Favorite favorite gospel? Kind of favorite beginning of uh, origin story of Jesus? Like they're they're all very four very different. Well, real quick, you you brought up something that really fascinating because, like you said, so in Mark it seems that Jesus sort of becomes the Christ at his baptism. There's also the idea, and I think this is found in, in elsewhere, I can't remember if it was in Acts or if it's in um, where it's found, I'm sorry. But there's a, there's also another place where it seems to say suggest that Jesus became Christ at the resurrection. And I've also heard other theories that Jesus became the Christ at the crucifixion when he only when he physically died on the cross. Because until he... And I guess we can get into this when we talk about the incarnation, but it's the idea that until Jesus truly tasted death, he had not fully completed his incarnation because until you die, you haven't fully shared in humanity. So I think it's fascinating to me to look at that because I think here's, here's the thing that's, I think people need to keep in mind. There are four different gospels and each gospel has a slightly different point and emphasis and version of the story. We have, I grew up in evangelical Christianity. Everyone's trying to harmonize these four things together. They're not trying to harmonize with each other. They're aware of each other. If they wanted to harmonize themselves, they could have done that, but they didn't try to do that. Mark says one thing, Matthew and Luke say something slightly different. John says something totally different and they're okay with that. And I think. Number one, so like that's why you, you could even ask that question, Katie. Which one do you like? Because there's different versions of that story, and you get to pick the one you like. Yeah, I feel like when we harmonize them, we're just creating our own gospel. So if Keith, the gospel of Keith would be if you try to harmonize them all like we do in our churches. Yeah, or Marcion tried that. And, uh, you know, I'm not even saying think that's a bad idea. I just say, notice that that is what you're doing. Yeah, just call it it It's an artificial thing that you're doing. And and, um, I've been reading a book lately, um, which I love, on the Gospel of Thomas, and I'm falling in love with the Gospel of Thomas. And and I'm like, well, you know, why couldn't Thomas be thrown into the mix? Like, because Thomas, in other words, there's no agreement between the other ones. So why do we need agreement between Thomas and Mark or John or anything else? Like they're all valid for different reasons. And again, I think evangelical Christianity has gotten so fixated on, no, it's historical and it's all true and it's inerrant infallible. And somehow we have to twist ourselves into theological pretzels to make all of it be the same story. It's all telling you the same. There's only one story and it's all told in different versions and we just harmonize them into one big glob. But I don't think that that glob that we end up with of the harmonizing of the four different gospels um, is technically the true correct story. It's just a, it's an attempt to, to mush things together. My, uh, my favorite thing to do at Christmas, and I, I just decorated the other day, is to pull out my copy of the Brick Testament, which is <laughs> the, it's the, God, it's the Bible told in Lego. And it's well, maybe, yes. you can, you can see, everyone can see it online. It's like the best, it's the most beautiful thing ever. And uh, it's these that. like literal renditions through Lego of the Bible stories. But the Christmas yeah. one is great. And I used to, with my undergraduates, I used to um, give a whole lesson on the differences between the Christmas story and the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke because they're very, very different. And then I'd um, show a picture from the Brick Testament and they would identify the Gospel it came from. 
based yeah. on the uh, based on the artistry of the Legos. <laughs> It was beautiful. So like even in the first story, got Matthew and Luke, you know, there's so many differences. Yeah, absolutely. So is that a good segue then to talk about, um, speaking of scriptural differences, um, sort of the scriptural sources for this idea of the, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son? Well, isn't that, isn't that entirely a New Testament thing? Because if I, if I understand, I mean, I don't speak Hebrew, but if I understand, is it Alma? In in Isaiah, it just means a young woman, right? We we yeah. mentioned this yeah. earlier. Yeah, I think correct. some people, yeah, or or I think some people have like even translated to be like the virgin to be like not necessarily virgin, but maybe someone who gets pregnant on their first try. <laughs> wow. I don't know if I don't know if that's true. Okay, there's a little breakdown I think that could happen here that may be helpful. In Hebrew, there's a Hebrew word for young woman, which is Alma. There's another specific word for virgin, and Alma is not it. Uh, The word Alma really means young woman of marriageable age. So in Isaiah 7.14, the verse in question here, uh, the Hebrew to English translation of this verse is, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. Here, young woman is Alma. We know Emmanuel means God with us. Most likely, the young woman in question here is the royal wife of a king, most certainly not a virgin. So the two words uh, both refer to women, but uh, one's a virgin, one is just a young woman. What happens is that the Septuagint comes along and translates this from Greek, uh, from Hebrew into what happens is that that what happens is the Septuagint comes along and translates the Hebrew into Greek, and the word Alma is used nine times in the Hebrew Bible, and it's only translated into the Greek word for virgin, which is Parthenos, like the Parthenon on the Athenian Acropolis, twice. So out of the nine times. Alma is translated into the specific word for virgin only two times. So that's a little bit questionable why the translators did that. But at any rate, that's what the gospel of Matthew inherits when it uses the verse from Isaiah 7.14 to talk about the virgin birth of Jesus. Yeah. And I think it's also telling to me that, so the Gospel of Mark, which I think most scholars assume is the earliest gospel, whether it is or it isn't, um, but it seems that Mark might have been the earliest gospel. And it it opens with a prophecy from Isaiah. But it the, the, the prophecy, quote unquote, from Isaiah in chapter one, what verse uh, two of Mark is not a virgin will be with child. So, um, you know, I think that's really interesting that um, that Mark doesn't, in other words, it, Mark is writing his gospel. And if there is a virgin miraculous birth, he seems to be oblivious to it. Because you think you'd mention that right at the beginning, right? You'd think so. You would think so. That's right. You, you would think so. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, um, and, you know, we know this, right? I and mean, we've talked about this before, like how the Apostle Paul even plays pretty fast and loose with some of the ways he approaches and applies Old Testament scriptures to prove this or that about Jesus uh, in the Old Testament. And um, in ways that if you or I try it, we get we get called heretics and uh, like, oh, no, no, you can't do that. That's not what that verse says. But, you know, Paul, Paul seems to just 
take a lot of liberties with a lot of Old Testament verses and uh, say, oh, this says this and this proves that and blah, blah, blah. Whereas, you know, uh, just a regular Jewish rabbi at the time would have would have listened to him and said, what? That's not what that says. Where are you getting that from? Um, and so, you know, this may be another example of where the early church, I mean, we know this pretty quickly, right? That there's a there's an evolving Christology uh, that we see throughout the Gospels, right? So in the Gospel of Mark, you don't really come away from the Gospel of Mark feeling like, hey, this Jesus guy, if, in other words, if all you have was the Gospel of Mark, if you read the whole thing, you wouldn't come to the end and say, this guy Jesus was a pre, pre-existent creator of all things. No, you get that in John. And, um, and so, but it happens pretty quickly. I mean, there's not a huge gap of time between the time of the writing of Mark and then the writing of John. And then even later in the, the, some of the other letters, uh, like Colossians and Ephesians, where you also have this elevated Christology where, you know, uh, Christ is filled with the fullness of, you know, Christ, he's the fullness of, of, of God in bodily form and all that. And so that happens pretty quickly. And so I personally kind of feel that as that Christology um, rapidly accelerated between, we think this Jesus guy might be the Messiah. Oh, we think he might be the son of God. Holy crap, he was the creator of all things. Um, he's the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Like as that thought was developing, I personally think that, yes, they've they felt the need to sort of deify Jesus early on in this. I think this is where the virgin birth story kind of creeps in to kind of uphold this idea that, oh, no, he's not just some guy uh, who had some great teachings. He was God um, and born, by, born of God, not of flesh. Well, have we solved it then? Is that it? Sure. We, we solved we solved Christmas. <laughs> well, I'm curious for one, one final question. I'm kind of curious if the if there's anything redeeming or anything helpful about the virgin birth. Like I think we've kind of taken down like what may be harmful sort of ideas about purity culture that maybe um are are damaging. Like is there anything really redeeming about about a virgin birth. And, you know, I think it's really interesting that today we have the technology, we can have virgin births all over the place without them being miraculous. Yeah, there was just a story in the news um, last last week or so, like that two California condors um, had a virgin birth without a male uh, contributing anything to these two different condors they found, which... So, you know, and even in the animal kingdom, somehow, maybe these things, I know what happened. Are you saying Jesus was a condor? Or a lizard. I've heard heard stories of lizards and snakes also being spontaneously, you know, quote unquote, virgin births. How did the condor thing happen? Um, You'd have to read the story, but um, it's, here's the thing about it. So it was in some kind of enclosure. This is what I remember from the story. And uh, they were, they were raising condors in captivity and nobody sort of like saw it happen or anything, but they, I guess they were doing DNA testing on some of the males to see some of the, some, sorry, some of the chicks that were born, um, to see who the potential fathers could have been. Cause I guess they have files of DNA of all the other male condors in this habitat. And, and there were two condors that had no genetic material or DNA from any of the other males, any in that enclosure. And it was like, so they're, I think that's why they're calling it a virgin birth because all of the DNA information or genetic information came from the mother. Um, but you'd have to read the whole story to see the, where they're coming up with this virgin birth idea, I guess. Well, I guess uh, that's fascinating, by the way. I guess the redeeming thing for me is just simply what I said earlier about the fact that 
the Christian God is different than, than so many of the other gods in antiquity. And I think that plays out all throughout the Jewish Hebrew story and yep. continues on into the Christian story. And, and I don't need, I don't need it to be biological to be, um, you know, something that's interesting and a value that, that Jesus, if, if Jesus was quote born of a virgin, it's, it's, it's juxtaposed with the gods like Zeus and so on who have sons and daughters that frankly are not born of virgins. And it is not the choice of the human woman in the matter. It's up to Zeus and what Zeus desires. Exactly. I think that's a good point, Matt. I mean, I think you're right. So much of so it, there's a rich tradition in the Hebrew scriptures of taking existing pagan stories like the flood or, you know, many other stories that, that were already existed at the time and taking them and sort of redeeming them and saying, well, our God does that too, but he does it in a different way and a way that redeems the picture, right? So like in the flood stories, the, the other pagan stories, you know, there's this vengeful, wrathful, angry God that brings a flood and kills everybody. But in the, you know, in the Hebrew version, it's, um, in the Old Testament scriptures, the God, I, their God promises, I'll never do this again. And um, it's like, oh, wow, there's some like mercy there or something. Yeah. Um, and so I think you're right. Change. Yeah. Yeah. There's I think there's... that it could be a similar thing where what's happening is they're taking, you know, they're very aware in, in the culture they're in of these Roman gods that quite often come down and have sex with women against their will and have these demigod children. And they're, and they're saying, well, our God is better than that. And here's a better version of that, of that story. So I like that. Let's land this plane. Fa la 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 la. Yeah, Merry uh, Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas, everybody. Well, we might, do we have, we probably have another episode before Christmas time, oh, but uh, we'll it is the season. It's the holiday season. Anyway, before we sign off here, what better way to talk about Christmas than to talk about our website and the bookstore that we have there? So if you love all of our Heretics of the Weeks, Many of them have books, and we have many of those books at our bookstore. And they're roughly about 15% off, and they make great Christmas gifts. So we've got Rob Bell on there. We've got David Bentley Hart, the whole nine yards. Go to heretichappyhour.com. Check out all of our stuff, including our bookstore. See if there's a book there for uh, you know your fundamentalist friends or family. You can get them the book, and then you guys can have a book uh, a book club in January and and see just how it goes. Right back into fundamentalist with our back into fundamentalist with our bookstore. Oh, I love that, Katie. Just, Fantastic. Just so heretichappyhour.com. Hap- heretic Check it out. After you buy your books from the bookstore, we would love you to post a picture of what you get in our free Facebook group that's open to everyone, Heresy After Hours. I'm going to read you just a few of the fantastic posts that have come through today. I won't name names so that you'll know you belong among friends. Uh, someone reposted a hysterical YouTube that where Mary responds to the bad theology and contemporary Christmas songs like Mary Did You Know. Someone posted a Guns and Moses meme that I think you'll find pretty funny. Someone wrote, if religions were TV shows, Christianity would be the most successful spinoff in history. And then your thought-provoking post for the day, um, someone asked, what if someone were to present an understanding of God that would support both Trinitarian and Unitarian faiths? If you have an answer, come to our group, uh, post that, post your favorite memes, be among friends uh, who are with you on your deconstruction journey. Heresy after hours. And... 
Uh, if you love, if you like the podcast, and of course you made it this far, you must love the podcast. Please, 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 please do us a huge, huge favor. And would you rate and review us on whichever platform you happen to be listening to this podcast? Um, it, um, it goes a long way towards helping other people to discover the podcast and, um, you know, boost our ratings and all that stuff. It, uh, lots of good karma, beautiful things will happen for you. And, uh, you know, it's a good thing to do. So please do that. Thank you. Bye. Get your banjo. Barrett, Barrett, wake up. Do, 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 do.